Hi, this is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory at Brown University. Welcome to the Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speakers and ask them the interesting questions that you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of the companion Grand Rounds content can be found at impactcollaboratory.org. Thanks for joining. Welcome to our podcast from the Impact Collaboratory. I'm delighted uh, to be your host today. This is Vince Moore, and I'm one of the principal investigators of the uh, uh, NIA-funded Impact uh, Collaboratory, and uh, I have uh, the pleasure of interviewing uh, two wonderful friends, colleagues of longstanding, uh, Drs. Joan Tino and Dr. Deborah Saliba. They gave a wonderful grand rounds last week talking about the advantages and pitfalls of using existing data to building your pragmatic trial, uh, how to measure patient outcomes and patient conditions using uh, existing data as part of a pragmatic trial. So it was a delightful talk. Uh, Dr. Uh, Saliba is a, a senior scientist at Grand Corporation in California and Los Angeles. And Dr. Tino is a professor at the University of uh, at Health Science University of Oregon. And so I'm going to actually begin. There were a number of questions uh, asked from the audience, but I'd like um, uh, Dr. Tino to expand on a point that she made in uh, her talk uh, regarding um, what's the right unit of a random assignment or randomization when you're actually doing a pragmatic trial using identifiable information from something like an MDS. So... I think um, the right unit of analysis uh, all depends on what your experimental design is. So, for example, if you're intervening in nursing homes, the unit of analysis would be the nursing home. I think the really important consideration is to look at how balanced your randomization is on the characteristics of the nursing homes and whether some of those characteristics influence your outcome variables. So for example, it's well known within the Medicare billing data that the self has a tendency to document more diagnoses than in the northern states. Uh, at least that was a New England Journal article that was written several years ago by my colleagues at Dartmouth. So I think, you know, those are the things you really need to think through and as you do these pragmatic clustered randomized controlled trials. Great. Thank you very much. So Another related question, actually to the South, North, and otherwise, is given the huge variation uh, across the country in things like billing practices or even the mix of, uh, of residents or the performance of some of the healthcare systems, how do you think about when you want to use these kinds of data, how do you think about um, making sure that you've adequately selected a good nationally representative sample or that you are representing, even if it's not perfectly represented, that you're representing broad swaths of the, of the, of the country so that a finding from your study might be broadly generalizable? So what really is nice about administrative data is that you can use information from previous years to analyze and to look at uh, how that organization, uh, be it a hospital or how that nursing home is behaving. And so that will give you some ideas on the degree to which your randomization is balanced or not, depending on your clusters, okay? So that's one question that maybe is not directly getting at the point you make. Then the second question is when you think about selecting 
um, facilities, you want to think about the generalizability of those facilities and how it relates to the type of, uh, you know, nursing homes or acute care hospitals out there. And the one thing nice about administrative data is you can start looking at the data to understand the institutions you're enrolling and what the biases of those institutions and how they compare to the rest of the population. So might you want to sort of recommend to uh, somebody pulling a a study together like this that they might want to have representation uh, in both the experimentals and controls in different parts of the country or along some one or two parameters of interest, like the prevalence of a particular condition or otherwise? Yeah, I I think it all really depends on the research question that you're answering. And, you know, the one thing that is important uh, is that you want to make sure that you you have equity in terms of uh, including minorities and uh, different populations um, to make sure that the the intervention that you're testing is applicable to all populations out there. Yeah, very good. Thank you. So, uh, uh, Dr. Saliba, so uh, there's Dr. Saliba, for those of you who didn't hear the talk, she is the, uh, the, the originator or the designer, the coordinator of the creation of the uh, current minimum data set uh, version 3.0 and um, has been responsible for many of the elements within, uh, within the, that instrument and its use in various ways as quality measures and outcome measures, et cetera. Um, so Dr. Sleba, one of our uh, listeners wanted to know whether uh, you could comment on the ability of the MDS to track fluctuations or changes in some of these uh, outcome measures of interest over time. You know, how, how sensitive are those measures and do they vary? The MDS um, measures, the outcome measures, are sensitive to change over time. We see when we track them, for example, the implementation of measures in the five-star system, we will see improvements in those um, over time, some of which may be related to improved documentation, some of which may be related to improved performance, but we have seen that they are sensitive to change. Other work that we've done has shown that uh, providers do, nursing facilities, do pay attention to their um, outcome metrics, and they do try to implement uh, performance improvement. Some do that at a very basic level of just, again, improving documentation. Others, however, do try to implement quality improvement activities in response to those. So, and we do see some sensitivity. Additionally, some of the measures were selected because in other settings, they do show sensitivity to performance improvement and to change. So for example, with the PHQ-9, the severity scale within PHQ-9 has been shown to be sensitive to improvements, including treatment and uh, management of um, mood disorder. Very good. So um, the other related question that person also asks, somebody who's obviously quite familiar with the data, is there's a practice that has been characterize that some nurses from one assessment to the other, from one quarterly assessment to the other, might merely just carry over the last quarter's scores. Do you have any suggestions for people working with these data to say, or using them as an outcome measure for a pragmatic trial, to say under what conditions, are there tricks to the trade to find out which 
homes tend to do that more. Um, how can you how can you identify that in the data? That's a great question and, and a fundamental issue, I think, with all data, um, particularly as we see the electronic health record um, is, is specifically designed to auto populate and carry forward data. It's felt to be a, a way of improving efficiency uh, within practice and decreasing provider burden. So this is something we're going to have to figure out how to address. Within the MDS data, there are ways to do some internal validity checks to look at whether there are consistent um, pictures of the residents that are um, coming out of that data set to try to better understand whether that data is accurate. And then additionally, some of the items, if um, facilities are doing them correctly, um, then by going to the resident and actually asking the questions of the resident, we really are trying to avoid some of those biases that are in electronic health records and in administrative data where things are just carried forward. Um, But this has been something that has plagued uh, medicine for a long time. Uh, For example, diagnoses list. We know those just keep getting, you know, they never, they rarely get updated um, and maintained in terms of accuracy. So that's just an example of something that we need to figure out how to do better at the clinician level, in addition to doing these internal validity checks um, as data analysts. So this is great. I will now ask you one more question. This is you sort of raised this. Is it um, one of the great um, sort of advantages and uh, leaps forward of MDS 3.0 was to actually to hear the voice of the patient, to direct the staff, to direct staff to actually ask questions of the patient, which is a really wonderful innovation in that sense, not so much an innovation, but a a regulatory change. But one of the questions was whether um, you could provide any guidance about how to integrate the staff observation information and the resident responses, particularly for when there are people who have dementia or otherwise. How can you bring those two together? Uh, Should they be correlated? Should they not be correlated? You know, uh, under what circumstances would you want to bring them together as one measure? It varies by measure, um, depending um, on what you're looking at. Certainly for certain items, the instructions that are there encourage um, the individual assessor to integrate that information themselves, to look at what's documented in the medical record, talk to staff across multiple shifts, observe and talk to the resident. That has been left to the skills of the assessor, which really is how um, medicine works, um, is taking these multiple sources of information and integrating them. But I think the question specifically is referring to those sections of the MDS where there are, for those persons who are able to make themselves understood at least some of the time, specific questions that should be asked of that individual. And then for those who cannot, the observational protocols. And I think, that, again, that, that varies by section in terms of the best way to try to uh, match those. We know and recognize that observation is not going to be as sensitive as the patient self-report will be. And I think it's very important to realize that even people with some levels of cognitive impairment can answer questions about how they feel um, and, and their recent um, experience. 
so that those folks are not excluded and are not shifted over to observational approaches. Standardizing the observational approach, having some specific parameters that you're going to implement to collect observational data can make a difference in being sure that you are going to be more sensitive and pick up information. For example, making sure you talk to caregivers across multiple shifts. The extent to which you improve the quality of your observational data, it makes it more likely to align uh, with self-report. But when we compare them, even in patients who can um, self-report and we look at the comparison of observational data to self-report data, they don't always, um, they don't typically directly um, align. Thank you very much. So I'm going to ask each of you uh, one last question. So I know both of you are at the forefront of not just analyses of these existing data uh, sources of secondary data, but also in the development of new data sources that are available for ultimately future secondary data sources. So, uh, Dr. Tino, what what's coming down the pike? What's what what are you working on? What's next that might be available for future researchers to look at? So, so rather than talk about what uh, I'm working on. I want to highlight what CMS is working on. And CMS is now working on claims-based measures to examine the quality of care. And so they're looking at specific practices that raises a, a concern with the quality of care, and they're aggregating them to use in, potentially in star ratings. So I, you know, I think there needs to be sort of a word of caution on the degree to which you can infer quality from claims-based indicators. You know, the one example that I always use when I talk about this is not all hospice emissions in the last three days of life are preventable. You know, not everybody can have a hospice link to stay longer than three days. So while um, many people will say a hospice mission less than three days is associated with poor quality care. It's not always possible for a clinician to change that disease trajectory because people do have catastrophic events. So I think we need to be very careful when thinking about inferring quality from these claims-based indicators. I understand that CMS wants to do this to make it easier on the providers and to uh, decrease costs, but you've got to be careful that you're really fairly um, measuring the quality of care across these providers when it comes to public reporting. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Saliba, what do you see coming down the pike? Well, we know that the standardization of data elements across different post-acute care settings is going to be implemented in the next few years. That's part of the IMPACT Act that was a bipartisan um, piece of legislation aimed to improve the ability to compare outcomes across all of the post-acute care settings. Been through the regulatory process and the plan was to implement the standardized data elements that was put on hold because of the public health emergency. However, once we're through this public health emergency, CMS remains committed to implementing those standardized data elements. They've now said that it will be two years after the end of the public health emergency to implement those changes across all of the post-acute care settings. And by that, we mean in nursing homes, 
in home health, in inpatient rehab facilities, and in long-term care um, hospitals. And you know, there may be, hopefully, at some point, some standardization of some of these data elements into other settings as well, so that we can really get a picture as people are moving across settings uh, about what's going on with them and uh, really be able to understand um, the trajectory of some of our patients. Uh, because we know patients move back and forth a lot across these, these different settings. And that each one, as Joan referred to earlier and, and, and you mentioned, have different um, incentives uh, for how they document in their data sets, have different even approaches to how they organize clinical care. So to the extent that we can come up with some data elements that are not as affected by some of those financial motivations that people can employ in assessing residents, I think it'll give us a much better way of both tracking uh, from an administrative data perspective what's going on with patients, as well as for, as a, from a clinical perspective to really get a good picture of what's going on with that individual over time. Great, thank you very much. It's a great vision of being able to see um, the same kind of data elements about people as they tr go through this, you know, tra transitions from one setting to the other uh, through characterizing the movements in their lives. That's wonderful. That's an interesting vision. Um, I want to thank you both very, very much for your time uh, and your great insights into how we use secondary data for doing analysis and understanding people's experience in the healthcare system. Thank you very much again. For those of you who are outside listening, please tune in at our next Grand Rounds, which I think the next one is in September. And I believe that's me who's actually going to be doing the next Grand Rounds on September 22nd. I want to thank you all very much again, and um, we'll sign off here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Please be on the lookout for our next Grand Rounds and podcast next month.